You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. <laughs> Welcome to the Women of Tomorrow podcast, where we work to change the social consciousness around women's worth and equality through art, education, and community. I'm your host, Laura Bell Bundy, and this is my partner, Shay Carter. April marks Second Chance Month, when we reaffirm the importance of helping people who were formerly incarcerated re-enter society. Here is a message from President Joe Biden about this month. America is a nation of second chances, and it is critical that our criminal and juvenile justice systems provide meaningful opportunities for rehabilitation and redemption. It is also vital that we address both the root causes of crime and the underlying needs of returning citizens using resources devoted to prevention, diversion, re-entry, trauma-informed care, culturally specific services, and social support. By supporting people who are committed to rectifying their mistakes, redefining themselves, and making meaningful contributions to society, we help reduce recidivism and build safer communities. We must rethink the existing criminal justice system and whom we send to prison and for how long. Today we have the opportunity to speak with two women who are deep in this fight. From the New York Women's Foundation Director of Programs, Gisela Meroquin, joins us to talk about the Foundation's 35-year history of advancing women's issues, including ending mass incarceration. The Foundation uses an early investment philanthropic approach that sets the stage for community leaders to flourish by investing in women-led strategies with the belief that when women and gender-expansive people thrive, their families and communities also thrive. The New York Women's Foundation participatory grant-making approach between community members, leaders, and funders creates opportunities for local solutions across a wide variety of areas, including gender, racial, and economic justice, expanding democracy and leadership, safety and healing justice, and health equity and reproductive justice. To date, the foundation has distributed more than $100 million to over 500 community-based organizations through their unique early investment strategy. In October 2018, the foundation created the Justice Initiative and Collaborative Fund, a first-of-its-kind grant-making and philanthropic mobilization effort to invest in community-based and cross-sector solutions that significantly decrease the involvement of women and families in all aspects of the justice system. Key among the priorities is closing Rikers Island and investing in alternatives that promote justice, safety, and overall well-being for these communities. One of the first grant recipients from this fund was Reverend Sharon White Harrigan, who founded the Women's Community Justice Association, WCJA. LBB, thank you for giving us so much information. And let me break it down in the most basic way possible. We all know that women lead movements, and we need more women to lead movements. And the New York Women's Foundation invests in women so they can lead movements. The New York Women's Foundation is a platform for women, cis and trans, non-binary and gender expansive people. They are a force for change using people. And when they want to protect women, that means all women, including those who are incarcerated or who have been incarcerated, which is why they are longtime supporters of the Women's Community Justice Association, also known as the WCJA. And that is why we have Sharon on today. Welcome, Sharon. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. Can you share with us what led to the inception of the Women's Community Justice Association? Oh, absolutely. The fact that uh, women have for so very long been overlooked, 
under-acknowledged, underrepresented. And, you know, just as the Close Rikers campaign was really um, gaining traction and what happened with Khalif Browder um, at that time. Just to give some context, Khalif Browder was an African-American youth from the Bronx in New York who was held at Rikers Island Jail Complex without trial between 2010 and 2013 for allegedly stealing a backpack containing valuables. During his imprisonment, Browder was in solitary confinement for 700 days. Two years after his release, Browder hanged himself at his parents' home. His case has been cited by activists campaigning for reform for the New York City criminal justice system. We really thought about how women were never really um, put into the conversations, were never really put into advocacy in a way um, that we were up front and center, always been an afterthought, you know, oh, yeah, and the women, too. You know, and although the women may be the smallest populations um, in prisons and jails, we are the fastest growing. So um, WCJA came about um, just understanding that there need to be an uh, uh, entity that it, that exists, that uplifts and um, elevates and um, address dismantle, disrupts all of the things that keep um, women oppressed. Mm -hmm. Do you feel comfortable sharing any of your experience? Oh, absolutely. I'm formerly incarcerated. Um, I've did uh, a a year collectively on Rikers Island um, and over a decade in Bedford Hills Correctional Facility behind a man attempting to rape me back in 1992 and thus began, you know, my my road um, to my advocacy and activism um, in this, you know, prior to that, you know, I am an atypical story than what you find um, within prison walls. You know, I come from a a family that, you know, raised in a two-parent household. Education was the capstone, you know, and the cornerstone of our our household. And I was sheltered. I was sheltered from, you know, all of the things that was happening around us in in certain communities. And so when I I myself wound up behind um, prison walls, it was a shock to me how many women and gender non-conforming folks was um, incarcerated and the trauma um, that led to that. And so um, that's one of the reasons why I became a, a social worker, a licensed social worker, because there weren't any social work um, workers in prison um, to address the root issues, the causes, the, you know, um, all of the things that brought us to prison. Um, instead, they only had psychiatrists that just wanted to medicate people so that they can forget that they have problems rather than address it. And so, you know, um, this brought me to um, where I am, you know, um, now I, I'm in a recipient of of rape. I've been raped. I've been um, in domestic uh, domestic violence. I can't even call it a relationship. Um, and these things, we know that at a time, you know, I don't want to tell my age. I'm young, um, but I'm I'm 55, right? And mm-hmm. so going back to an age in my 20s, just turning 20 and being in a domestic violence relationship where, you know, or domestic violence situation um, that in my household, you know, that I just didn't come from that. I didn't see that. I wasn't raised with that. You know, there was no safe havens. There was no places that we could come to and talk about why this shouldn't happen. People just didn't talk about it. Things just really became real 
when I experienced it for myself. And that was such an eye opener. That was such a, a self-awareness and, and just being in tuned and a, a community awareness, how so many women had that same kind of, of, of bottom line, right? Um, that, that, that base line that they had this trauma, this domestic violence, childhood violence, all of these things. And although I couldn't relate to all of that, I can relate to some of it. And so my life can't be anything else but what it is, you know, because of my personal experience. Yeah. You know, it's, I want to, I want to jump in and, and add something Um, at women of tomorrow. We, we do a lot of work to understand the connection between women's issues and how they intersect. And you were talking about domestic violence or, or child abuse. We can't ignore the fact that gender-based violence is the primary driver of a woman's incarceration. And this was on your website. An estimated 77% of women in jail nationally are survivors of domestic violence. In addition, women's criminal involvement is more likely to flow from their relationships with family or intimate partners than is men's. And violence against women defines women's experience within the criminal legal system. And I want to add to that, that just here are some basic stats of what's going on in America. One in four women experience domestic violence in their lifetimes. That's 25% of women. Every month, 70 women in the U.S. are shot and killed by an intimate partner. And the main reason for homelessness for women in the U.S. is domestic violence. And homelessness also can lead to being incarcerated. We can't ignore female incarceration is a huge women's issue that stems from other women's issues and a patriarchal thinking of entitlement over a woman's body, whether that's in the form of uh, sexual violence or violence and manipulation in general, a sense of ownership. And, um, but that's baked into the cake, right? Of, <laughs> I think there's also a patriarchal idea, even less severe about women's roles and how women are supposed to like, you know, protect their children in certain capacities that are sometimes impossible for them. I mean, there was a domestic violence survivor in Oklahoma who was sentenced to 30 years in prison because her partner was abusive. And so she was sentenced to 30 years for failure to protect her children. And he was sentenced to two years. And so a lot of times in these states, there's these other expectations just of women's purity and, and women's ability to do all things, provide for their children and protect them and be there full time, you know, kind of an impossible standard. And I think, and I, I just want to add to that, that this goes along with just our history alone, you know, just in particular, just understanding how we raise our children, the culture, you know, the ideologies, all of the things that we have normalized throughout the years, right? That, you know, men shouldn't cry. They should be this. They should be that. They should be strong, you know, and that women, oh, you should be strong. You have to do this. You have to be there for the kids. You have to be barefoot and pregnant. All of these things is, this is what leads up to what is, you know, we have always since the beginning of time and, and as a woman of faith, biblical times that we have been treated as other second class mm -hmm. citizens or less, that we have never been seen as as partners, as equals, as, you know, um, and this is why people feel like they can make decisions and have control over our person. You know, um, this is taught, learned behavior, things that have been put in place. And, and you know, now we need to change that narrative and, and change laws. And, and, you know, and it takes all of us. Well. And change how we talk about it in the home. I yeah, mean, we, right. we, we uh, at Women of Tomorrow, we just offered a class to, you know, anyone who follows us called How to Talk to Your Kids About Consent. Is the reality is that we have a rape culture. We can have a consent culture. That's right. Um, if we 
if we give children the license to understand what boundaries are, not only with their own bodies, but other people's bodies and respecting, you know, I don't consent to that, or I don't, I'm uncomfortable. Like, you know, don't make your kid have to hug your hairy, sweaty uncle. Like that's also consent. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to jump back in and, and ask you about your Beyond Rosie's hashtag Beyond Rosie's campaign. So what is that? So the Beyond Rosie's campaign is a decarceration campaign. And so we have these pillars in which, A, we want to close the Rose M. Singer Center, dubbed as as Rosie's on Rikers Island. It's the only female jail that exists um, on Rikers Island for for women and gender nonconforming folks and those who identify as women. You know, um, we want to shut that down. So, you know, there's a plan to close Rikers and it started out at 2027. And so our idea is there are less than 300 and 50 women on Rikers Island right now that we can safely shut that down, right? And get the women off um, sooner than the anticipated date. Um, The other thing is reinvestment into the community. And, And so we say reinvestment, but the reality is invest into the communities because we come to understand and we know that there's communities, marginalized, disenfranchised, low income communities that aren't invested in, you know, and if they are invested in, it's to gentrify it and then move those who who really, you know, belong there uh, to, to move on. This is where the homelessness now just, you know, um, becomes becomes more right that it increases. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Um, and so, and the other thing is housing. Housing for all. Everyone has a right, right, to be housed. Whatever that looks like for them. You know, not everybody wants an apartment. Not everybody just wants a room. Not everybody might want to live in a house, but everybody has the right to be housed. And and so with Beyond Rosie's, it is everything pertaining to women and gender non-conforming folks um, with all of the issues. We address black maternal health. You know, we address poverty. We address all of these things because these are the things that is affecting the, you know, the communities the most. Most importantly, Beyond Rosie's is about healing justice in a different kind of way, not just repairing, you know, relationships and stuff like that, but really healing, healing from the inside out, really understanding what does that mean? Everybody's inches measured differently, you know? And so what does healing mean for someone that might've known, um, just harm all their life, right? What does what does healing look like for someone who has been poor all their life? What does healing look like for someone who's seen nothing but violence and 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 conflict in their life or incarceration that's generational or or just you know being on on welfare, whatever it is, or their children in the system in foster care. You know, and so just 
really understanding what does healing at the table mean for every individual? Because, you know, not for nothing, women are the heart, the core, the root, the soul of the family and of the community. And you invest in the women, you are investing in the men, you are investing in the children, you are investing in everything because we know that we are the spine, right? We keep, we hold everything up and we shouldn't have to be resilient, right? Resilience is a specialty word. I remember growing up, resilient is a word that you had to look in the dictionary and be like, how you spell that again? Because it wasn't used as often. But now we use it regularly and we shouldn't have to muster up everything, all the strength, everything that we have just to go through our daily endeavors. We shouldn't have to draw on all the strength that we have, right? To, to just go through our day, but we do and we shouldn't have to. So what does healing really look like? And that's what the Beyond Rosies, it means beyond jail, Right beyond that jail at, on Rikers Island, beyond the prisons up in New York State, beyond anything, what does it mean to be beyond anything that is harmful and hurtful to the women, to the gender nonconforming folks in the community? It's beyond. So that's what the campaign really just represents anything beyond hurt and harm and violence. Oh, and it's amazing. So it's necessary. amazing because what you're doing is the rehabilitation that should be happening the moment the crime takes place, if a crime takes place, right? Like there's like empathy that we lack in this country around how we got to where we are, what led a person to certain actions, and what systems are in place that made that person you know, which though, as we look at those systems and how the structures in our country are built or around women, um, they're criminal, right? They are criminal. And we're fighting those all the time. But you keep hearing the same rhetoric, right? Well, prison's not supposed to be comfortable. You did something bad. This is your punishment. And then we create this lack of empathy for people that are put into certain positions for so many other variables that aren't talked about. It's this idea that there's an easy black and white, good and bad, and there's gray. There was a question I wanted to ask you, having been incarcerated, it seems like there are so many fewer programs for women than there are for men in the criminal justice system and in prisons. Um, do you think that's because there's this idea that men are still the breadwinners? Women don't need these rehabilitation programs, don't need these abilities to get jobs outside of being incarcerated? Absolutely. I mean, it goes back to that patriarchal, you know, way of thinking. Um, and also, too, I think that, I mean, we're, we're intimidating. Let's not for nothing. You know, women now are we have conquered the workforce, the, the schools. We have conquered the churches where every place, everywhere. Then we we come home, we got the children, we got dinner, we got the housekeeping. I mean, hell, we even changing the batteries in the remote now, right? <laughs> to the TV. I mean, you know, for nothing, you know, the bottom line is, is that how do you, you know, you can't have control if you don't have people to have control over, right? And so if we are coming up the dominant ones now, cause I mean, you know, not for nothing. And I, I love men. I just have to say that for my husband cause he's upstairs, <laughs> but you know, um, you Same. can't step on us anymore, right? We, I'm saying we have rose up, you know, we are the, the dominant ones. And, and so, and, and we're doing it. And we're doing it, you know, and we don't wear capes every day, you know. And the fact is, is that it's almost it, it, and I'm 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 going to put it in this context. It's almost how the black and the brown, the, especially the black community felt being kept uneducated. This is how it is for women. Right. You keep them at a certain level so that you can have the control. 
so that you can financially, emotionally, spiritually, physically control them, period. Why wouldn't you give us the same amount of programs? Why wouldn't you give them what they need, especially if they tend to the house, right? Because it's mama's baby, but daddy's maybe, right? So regardless of what, we know that a mother is a mother, even if a father doesn't claim their kids. So regardless of what, you know that the women is the ones that are the stable, steady ones. And I'm not saying that, you know, men aren't anything, but in the context of women, we are everything to everybody. Why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you give us what we need to survive? It's so interesting because in preparation for this interview, I was looking at different ways that they keep it equal, right? So for male prisons, there was this rule of if you were going to be transported outside of the prison, you had to be shackled on both your ankles and your wrists. And so they just naturally made that equal for women's prisons without taking into consideration that women go into prison pregnant and then will have to give birth to the baby. And so now we have women in active labor being shackled to a bed, both ankles and wrists. And so it's like they cherry pick and pick and choose what's going to be equal, whereas like reformation programs, not gonna be equal. Shackling, well, that's gotta be equal. So we do this picking and choosing and it seems that you're right. It's like we, they're doing this in order to keep power to one gender. On your website, you had written about a woman named Laylene Polanco. And I was curious if you would feel comfortable sharing this story with our listeners. Um, this sort of explains not only sort of sexism in the justice system, but economic injustice. And uh, I, I thought it would be interesting for you to share about sort of what is going on in New York and, and with and with this particular prison. Leilene, and and I just want to put a disclaimer that I, I did not know Leilene personally, um, and her story, her narrative is not mine to tell. But what I will say is that she was on Rikers Island. Um, she could have been out on bail. Right. And that's another thing that we definitely need to address is the fact that if people can't afford bail, like it's in order to even just have a bail process. If people can be out on the street, even with a murder charge with bail. Right. I'm just saying, what is the what is the sense? There's other forms that the other ways, other methods, other practices that can happen. Right. That people can still be in the community. So she was on a bail low bail, and she was put in solitary confinement as a transgender woman, and she shouldn't have been, right? She shouldn't have been in solitary confinement. She had health issues. There was things going on, um, and she should not have been in solitary confinement, and she wind up dying. And I I think she is a a, a uh, an example, uh, and I—it's uh, really a, a really touchy subject, only because you know you don't want to use people as an example, but just to say that there is a better way, and there can be justice beyond punishment, right? To deal with folks, to deal with people, right? Not locking them down like animals, and and doing things that you know. Um, that is just really not only inappropriate, but come on, it, this is dehumanizing, right? It's it's dehumanizing. And so, you know, when I think of it, and, and let me just say this, Rikers Island is the warehouse, right? But we, we also have to get at the courts because Rikers Island is a place, right? DOC is the place that is the people that are over the place. But it's the courts that send the people there, you know, so this responsibility is across the board, you know, it's really across the board. And we keep criminalizing people who have survived. We keep sending people who need help, mental health care, need substance usage care, you know, need all of these other things. But instead, we detain them 
on at Rikers Island. You know, so there's this greater issue there and then all of these other issues there. And Laylene should have never died. She should have never died on Rikers Island. You know, she should have never been in solitary confinement. You know, she should not even been there, you know, and, and that's the reality. The same with Khalif Browder, the same with uh, many other people. And we, you know, we're in conversation now with the city, you know, just talking about how do we take care of the women. And, and of course, the men will come, but the women first. I'm sorry, uh, fellas. Love y'all. But OK, um, how do we safely get people to where they need to be? Get the the way we treat people in New York. How we detain them and incarcerate people, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves, right? Because for a place to be so progressive, to be so, you know, have, you know, all of these resources, I mean, and we have many resources. You go to other states, right? And 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 then you say, well, Dad, New York got it going on, right? how we do not utilize what we have. We spend a lot of money and it's a bunch of fluff, you know, because a lot of these resources are underutilized. We spend money to do these things. You know, uh, de Blasio's wife spent millions of dollars to have these mental health Two diversion centers open, one in East Harlem and one in the Bronx, I believe, to have people, instead of getting arrested, to go to these diversion centers. Underutilized. Nope, you haven't even heard of them. Look at that. I'm just, you know, people don't even know that they exist. So, you know, how can it be effective if people don't even know that it exists? You know, and so that's, you know, how we do things. You know, Rikers Island, you know, we know that Rikers need to close, but we also need a strategy. We also need to have a great plan in place, right, to decarcerate the folks. You can't just relocate all 5,000 plus people into borough-based jails and all, that shouldn't be the plan at all. The plan should be, how do we get people where they need to be? So I don't know if I- Is that have anything to do with the path to uh, under 100? The path to under 100, yes. We had that done to, to show that there is a roadmap. There mm-hmm. is a pathway to getting the women safely, you know, and and with with intent, right, to places that they can get their needs met. And if we at 300 and I know I think it's 331 women and gender nonconforming folks that's there now, under 100 leaves a handful of people that needs a great level of care because they have the most serious of charges. The rest can be put back and, 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 and safely brought back into the community, you know, in alternatives, in other places, you know, to get their, to get their needs met. The rest, you know, build the healing center, you know, so that people can go to, and that's the path to under 100, is showing that it can happen, it can work, and it's doable. I would be remiss to not point out that your work was critical to the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act that was enacted in New York State in 2019 to provide judges with more discretion on sentencing a domestic violence survivor who is convicted of a crime related to their abuse. And this law allows for alternative sentencing and retroactively gives those sentenced prior to the law's enactment the chance to apply for resentencing. Uh, in fact, I I think I went to a uh, domestic violence survivors justice act 
event and got to listen to a woman who was re- was resentenced um, and in fact was released based on being able to prove uh, the abuse that she experienced and that her crime was related to uh, her intimate partner ex- essentially uh, b- controlling her to commit those crimes essentially. And it's sorely underutilized, right? With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. How many more people? What about the ones that can't prove significant domestic violence because they couldn't call the police or they didn't call the police because of the community they come from, because of, you know, their situation? You know, this time I remember even in my own experience where I had the police, the police came, took him away and released him. We was in Harlem, released him 15 minutes later. He came walking back around the corner. So obviously there's no record of that, you know, so it's unfortunate we have this this law that exists. And again, it's still flawed. There's still things that that could be enhanced and added to. But the reality is, is that the judges, you know, don't utilize the authority that that they have enough because the majority of women come from a baseline of DV, right? Or IPV. A lot of people that have even submitted an application has been denied. And then on the front end of it is, if there's a a domestic violence situation, from the beginning, an assessment can be made. They would never have to touch jail or prison. They would never have to have handcuffs. They would never have to even be detained. That's the discretion that the judges have. But again, to even show that a man was able to be the first one to come out from under this law still show you that we got too much more to go. It also makes me think of victims' rights and how most states in the United States don't have victims' rights. And I think New York is one of the states that doesn't have victims' rights, meaning victims aren't told about court dates for their perpetrators. They aren't told when their assailants are released from prison. And so you have a lot of women, especially with the COVID releases that were being attacked by the men that they put in prison for domestic violence. And then they're expected to not fight back. And if you do fight back, then now you also have to the repercussions of that. I have a question that we didn't ask you before. So if you don't know the answer to this, that's totally fine. But COVID saw a lot of early releases for a lot of people that were incarcerated. Do you know the the differences gender-wise, what it was for men and women or the trans community? Or I, I probably have the numbers somewhere because that's when we activated our task force. What I do know is that the women went down almost half. The women got down to 129 um, during COVID. And of course, more men, I am going to say, I I don't off off the cuff know the percentage, but there were definitely more men released because of course there's more men yes, of that are detained. There's 5,000 to 340, mm-hmm. you know, 31 um, women. But that was a time that I, I think that we should go kind of go back to that. 
how did that happen and and be able to create a model from that because it they people got released and the numbers got down now how do we keep it down how do we and kind of draw from that so i can get you some accurate numbers but know that yeah there were definitely more men to women but the women's population cut in half it's during huge. covid it was, right. that's huge that's and huge that, 129 that's huge that also tells you women potentially being in prison unnecessarily most likely for nonviolent crimes if they did not feel as if the general public was at risk for their release and taking a look at their record and their behavior, et cetera, et cetera. But what needs to happen and what you are providing is the ability to have rehabilitation after, not only after trauma committed against them prior to incarceration, but during incarceration. That leads me to um, congratulating you on your honor. Uh, The New York Women's Foundation Celebrating Women's Breakfast pays tribute to extraordinary honorees and grantee partners who are advancing innovative and bold solutions to create an equitable and just future for women and families. Um, The breakfast that is coming up on May 4th is an annual tradition and significant fundraising event contributing to the foundation's annual grant-making efforts. And in the 2023 Celebrating Women Breakfast, it will be a hybrid celebration, both in-person and virtual, and the Women's Community Justice Association is one of the honorees this year. So congratulations on that extraordinary honor. Thank you. And for doing this work that you do, um, which is truly dismantling the patriarchy. So I appreciate that so deeply. Um, And today... Uh, we also have New York Women's Foundation representative Gisela Marroquin, director of programs who works closely with your association. Gisela, what is the origin of your partnership and relationship uh, between the New York Women's Foundation and the Women's Community Justice Association? Hi, all. Yes, we uh, actually uh, met Sharon and folks who were beginning to build this idea of the Beyond Rosies campaign uh, back in 2017 out of uh, former relationships for grants that we had made around alternatives to incarceration and housing options um, through housing um, um, housing plus, which creates those opportunities for women coming home to have uh, family u- reunification and an alternative uh, space. So, you know, this happens a lot to us in our relationships with folks that we grant uh, for a number of years. They come back and they're like, "There's, there's a new piece." You know, there's a maybe a collaboration, a coalition that we're building. And so, uh, they came to us at a moment where we were also listening to other grantee partners about the urgency of closing Rikers, uh, the opportunity that was being posed um, with some, you know, some of their advocacy for the administration to commit to a particular date to close it. And so um, we were more than happy to partner with women we knew well and um, who we knew were very much leaders in the space um, as they developed this idea. And so we started, you know, with a with a seed grant to sort of strategize and put the 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 thoughts together. And since then, we've been close partners, both as you know, uh, funders, um, but also I think it just grows deeper. You know, there's uh, for me a real um, gratifying and, and 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 an honor to be in the company of uh, all of these women who've been advocating, not just you know since their time coming home, but actually within uh, the walls of these prisons and, and, and jails where they um, were building resources because they're problem solvers without any resource and uh, already thinking about, you know, a policy as you are all talking about the um, DVSJA and others. It's amazing. And I'm, as someone who is very familiar with the New York Women's Foundation, um, I'm so pleased that you guys are investing in this effort. This fact was also on the White House website. Every year, over 640,000 people are released from state and federal prisons. 
More than 70 million Americans have a criminal record that creates significant barriers to employment, economic stability, and successful reentry into society. Can either of you speak to how decarceration efforts serve as an intersection of economic security, criminal justice reform, and reproductive justice? Sure. Sharon, I hope you don't mind if I can start because it's sort of uh, the intersectionality of our of our values and our in our grant making model. Um, you know, we are we we see those intersections as we go and see a group that maybe identifies itself as doing economic security work, but then starts to talk about the uh, participants and and the folks they're working with on the ground who are also encountering issues that somewhat intersect. So, you know, as as you were all mentioning, uh, the pathway into incarceration, there's so many different ways. And so, you know, anywhere between like childcare uh, and the child welfare system that sits really close to it, um, you know, uh, to uh, homelessness, right, and the housing um, uh, issue. Um, so for us, you know, at the core, our whole strategy around grant making is um, around economic security and justice, reproductive justice, and um, certainly anti-violence and safety as a whole, um, which is now inclusive also of the healing justice work that Sharon was talking about. So um, we don't, you know, think of uh, our grantee partners as doing silo work. Uh, we definitely see them as being in relationship with each other in close proximity, and certainly, you know, uh, working to um, really build up the solutions in all of their neighborhoods. Um, so we see our work as really uh, uh, providers of the ecosystem and supporters of the ecosystem um, of, of resources for these groups to thrive. Uh, we also know from them and learn from them that, you know, policy is one tactic, but there's also, you know, the organizing piece, the services piece, all of those are also super necessary in order to ensure that people are able to make um, both, you know, individual impact, but also systemic uh, impact. And so we understand that poverty and uh, other conditions can certainly drive um, systems of confinement, even outside prison jails, right? Like sort of keeping folks in one neighborhood with limited resources, with limited networks um, can yield a lot of different problems. Um, that they themselves try to find solutions to, but then find themselves under-resourced. So um, that is really what drives us to continue to do the work. And as it relates to the criminal justice space, we knew that other funders had supported re-entry work, had supported you know, um, prevention work, youth development work, but weren't really thinking in the family paradigm, um, which to us was really important to elevate in the space and for, um, you know, our justice fund, as we call it, um, our seven-year initiative, calling on other funders to come at the table, that's really the learning we want them to take, that if we're going to really resolve and dismantle mass incarceration anywhere, we need to elevate that when a woman is put into the pathway of incarceration, it affects the entire family, the entire community, right? Um, and then a, an entire movement uh, can be really broken by missing um, their, their, the, the women uh, within the system. So um, it's it's been, to me, really great to see this um, specific initiative really grow and center that. And um, the Women's Community Justice Association and their Beyond Rosie's campaign has really been a core of that. Can you can you talk a little bit more about the seven year uh, plan that you have? Sure. Um, so it was launched in 2018. Um, we are getting close to that year five in October, um, and our our really our vision was to um, mobilize philanthropy to really think about the gender lens within the criminal justice space at a critical moment. Uh, 2018 was, you know, a year of uh, the mayor and Mayor de Blasio at that time, um, really wanting to commit to closing Rikers and uh, proposing a plan that would build um, smaller facilities in different neighborhoods. And so community engagement was key at that time. And we felt that it would be needed for us to invest so that communities could really be a part of that process, get to have their voice included 
and we didn't want to exclude women anymore, right? So motivated in the same way that that Sharon was sharing, um, just like this is this isn't going to be another table or another decision that's going to exclude the voices of women. So we launched with the idea that other funders would start coming to the table, and um, on the one hand, maybe increase their own. Um, philanthropic investments in this area, but now with a knowledge around the gender justice lens. Um, and then, you know, while they can sit and contribute with us, um, that there could be a, a, a further collaboration in philanthropy to make this beyond the seven years an investment that's really permanent in our space. Because we know these campaigns take many years, you know, to to the point of W uh, of, of um, DVSJA, it was built, you know, 14 years ago as a campaign that's taken, there's still implementation pieces that folks need to invest in. So um, our initiative is really to entice that um, philanthropic field to really um, stay for the long run, uh, provide you know the supports that folks need. And under our model um, in the New York Women's Foundation, we not only provide the grant, but we also provide uh, technical assistance and what we call capacity building, which are additional dollars and additional opportunities uh, for the uh, organizations and their infrastructures to also get support um, to be sustainable. We know a significant number of women in prison um, end up there because, like we were talking about before, they're disadvantaged as children. How do you feel the overturning of Roe v. Wade will impact those numbers in the future? Again, everything is intersecting, right? So um, we definitely see the criminalization, right, is the core of uh, all of these actions, all of these policies. So anything that could be labeled as wrong and criminalized is put into the books. Uh, and while we think that, you know, New York is very progressive, uh, there are certainly parts of the state which lack access to uh, even a clinic that a woman can turn to, right? Uh, even access to the right information uh, around what their rights are um, and the uh, resources that are available. So uh, the numbers, you know, um, may not necessarily increase here, but I think there's a sort of a connected domino effect that happens and that we will see, um, and, and this is also coming from one of our grantee partners that has shared that there's billboards in states where there's so many different uh, laws prohibiting abortion and access to it as like New York is, you know, a, a supportive state. So <laughs> folks, you know, coming from down south all the way. So it puts a burden on the um, like the system in place of advocates and services that is here in New York trying to be supportive over decades at this point um, of, you know, if they're not also seen and um, investments are not made in them at this critical moment, we could see, you know, just sort of like uh, all of it falling apart. And so we are, we were very uh, interested as well of being uh, at the pulse of what was happening so that we could invest and make sure that those networks that, you know, abortion access funds were um, sustainable and had enough staff to be able to respond to these things. So they're at the intersection of having to provide legal services and having to build their own legal service um, network to support folks coming into the state. Um, and I think that what might get caught in between is, you know, folks getting arrested for transporting someone from a different state because, you know, and so police departments are certainly uh, in the habit of collaborating with each other and uh, targeting folks. And so in those less friendly regions of the state, we might see some upkick of that kind of activity uh, as things get tougher, right? We've only had a year to sort of observe what's happening, um, but in a month uh, just now, right, we can see so much can happen um, so quickly as it relates to access and, um, access to medications. And we are, uh, again, not as progressive as they think. So there are other grantee partners that are actually working on just even access to contraceptives. And what does that mean through our health insurance and through uh, other ways in which policy can um, intervene or, you know, prevent us to have access and dictate our bodies and, <laughs> and what we, what, what our choices are. It's interesting. I was looking at single moms and single mothers are 80% of all single parents. 
and over 20% of single moms are living below the poverty line, which means that children are too. Mm -hmm. And we're only going to see those numbers go up with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt that that is going to impact and one of the security. Yeah. One of the statistics I saw too was 58% of women in state prisons are parents to minors. And what we don't know is that there are policies in the books on the federal level that also have made it really hard for those women in prison to actually keep their parenting rights. Um, you know, a lot of uh, work has actually gone into preventing that those policies be renewed year after year. Um, because it essentially creates a really fast pathway for adoption for kids that, um, you know, through the foster system. And uh, it's so complicated and so many layers. So again, for us, uh, it's so important that folks are aware of all of the ways in which women are impacted and families as a whole um, are, are really torn apart um, through incarceration or any form of criminalization. It seems like the more you look into it too, the more things you never even considered break your heart. Like I was mm. reading about women trying to make phone calls to their kids, not having enough money to make their monthly phone call, having kids in multiple homes and having to decide which one to call. Yeah. These are just scenarios you never really think of. And when you do, your empathy for it kind of explodes, you know? Yeah. I will add that um, in New York, uh, a lot of these prisons are uh, very far away from uh, where families live. So folks from New York City, right, go into prisons uh, kind of far away. So it requires, you know, a lot of transportation costs to take families up there. If they don't have a car, uh, you know, it's uh, bus, uh, trains, and then a lot of walking because it's not a very short ride from the train station or the bus stop onto um, an actual facility. And it's uh, very heartbreaking to your point to hear the stories of how that um, you know, impedes people from being able to see their family, to stay connected. Um, but in addition to that, just to even access uh, healthy foods, right? You, If you're eating uh, the food that the facilities are giving you uh, for 15 years, you know, how do you come home and expect to have, uh, you know, be in, in, in your best health? Uh, so we haven't even opened up that piece of re-entry and um, the healthcare system, right? Then you're also so limited by employment. And so your health insurance is a state funded and you're not going to be able to access the best of networks. And, um, you know, I just can't tell you that through this work, uh, how we have held space um, through COVID and even before for folks who have passed on, uh, who are amazing women, who are leaders until the end in their worst uh, health conditions um, because they just never had access to appropriate health care. Um, so, you know, if we could take a moment here and just honor the space for Rusty Miller Hill, like the, 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 the AIDS epidemic was one that was very close to her heart. And during COVID, uh, we lost Rusty. And just, we all really were reminded of how difficult and uh, how just fragile the healthcare system is in treating uh, folks who are coming home and how, that seems to be like a continuous way to punish people without access and the appropriate care for all of them, for their whole self. Right. It goes longer than the prison sentence, right? Yep. I'm going to give us an opportunity. Is there anything that we want to say that you guys want to talk about that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about? I'm like, uh, do we have weeks, months? Because <laughs> I can, I, I don't even know where to, you know, to begin. There's, there's just so much, Gisela. Well, I think for for us, it's um, that, you know, it's so easy to say it. We believe that folks who are directly impact are building the solutions, right? Uh, and I think for me personally, coming to uh, a, a place that had that value as the as the core of how it invests is really important. Uh, I grew up in a in a home with a single mom. Uh, I also experienced the ways in which uh, some some support systems weren't appropriate, right? To uh, support my mother and. Um, 
And I think it all has to, it all connects back to a lack of resources. So even the nonprofit world often uh, struggles with how to deliver a service if it, it if itself uh, is, is not feeling sustainable or stable uh, in the resources that it has. And so I think uh, that had certainly an impact in the path that I've taken in my own career. Um, and so I will say that one of the most beautiful things I see here at the foundation is uh, that we 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 really amplify that leadership. We really amplify that expertise, and we also um, build it with a real commitment to partnership. Uh, uh, you know, a sort of a deep friendship that lasts for a long time. And so, when um, at, in leading this work, we learn from each other. And I think Sharon and I have developed a quite quite a strong uh friendship where we uh can can sometimes finish each other's sentences uh and we uh are just so honored um to to work together uh and so i know my place and uh i reflect on it often of what i can best do for for this particular campaign for this effort and initiative and um i think like sharon brings her her ideas to me and we strategize together because there's there's the investment lane that we sit in but also the systems change lane that we both uh are walking on so i really appreciate the partnership me too I just I just love me some you, you know, <laughs> um, and and I think that also too something that we we could talk about is also philanthropy. Right. And yeah. how how like um, foundations like the New York Women's Foundation and this this, you know, a couple of more. But right now we're, we're talking about us. Right. That mm -hmm. has changed the trajectory and the landscape of how funding happens, right? For yeah. people in the communities. I remember back, been home almost 19 years, when I first got into, you know, working in, working with an organization, you know, in this movement, like foundations, what, they they wouldn't even talk to you. Mm. They, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't even talk to you. They'd give you a booklet, you know, this is what you have to fill out. They want your unborn kids, your this, mm -hmm. your that, life insurance policies to all your, you know, everyone in your family just to get some money. And now here it is. You have the New York Women's Foundation that, that believed in us, right? They gave us the seed money. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's, that's important. We wouldn't exist. I remember coming home and, my resume was just bam. And they said to me, oh, yeah, you would be great doing this, but you haven't been home long enough, mm -hmm. you know. And so that's how it was for us. Oh, you know, I know this will be great. This is great work, but you're not really in existence. You're not you haven't been operating long enough. And if it wasn't for the New York Women's Foundation, honestly, right. We wouldn't be in existence. We wouldn't. You know, they gave us the seed money because not only was it about funding the work, but they believed in us. That changes the game, you know, that changes the landscape and, and how I, I, I just remember so distinctly how foundations were just very, they were ran and operated by white men with old money and 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 now this this is this is women okay here we go again women <laughs> at the helm and 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 it's not just oh well we're giving you money to do a service because it's the right thing to do but because we are invested all of us it takes all of us they are invested not only in the communities, but they really care. Um, and I just, you know, wanted want to highlight just how how funding has changed and, and how the applications now are one, two pages where you can just sit and have a conversation and that's the report versus 
spending hours doing this thing that takes away from the work, you know? So just wanted to say that I can't even express how appreciative and grateful and honored we are to be in in partnership to work with um, the New York Women's Foundation for many different reasons and on many different levels. They they change their game changer. They're seriously a game changer for women. I know that I'm super inspired by hearing the both of you. And I know the people that are listening to this podcast will be too. How can they, the people that are listening, support your organizations? What's the best way to go about that? For our work, I think, um, you know, a pitch that this is uh, work we're committed to in the long run. And so beyond uh, a donation to also um uh, sign up for our newsletter where we often highlight the work that's happening, um, who we're funding, what is coming up in the field. Um, it's a it's a Sunday newsletter that comes up and I find it um, more and more that folks are reading it and finding it really informative. So that's my little pitch for that. But also uh, invite you all to attend our events uh, where you uh, also continue to uh, support our work through, you know, uh, coming and sitting at the table, but also get to meet some amazing um, women and gender nonconforming leaders because they are part of our expansive definition of women. Um, so we have have a celebrating women's breakfast uh, coming up. So I hope you all would join us in celebrating Sharon, but also another uh, um, a couple of honorees and uh, to walk into a space with about 2000 women uh, at different tables feels really, really powerful, or even though it's early in the morning, but I encourage you all to uh, really uh, attend. I was so inspired uh, by the breakfast last year. I left buzzing and had a thousand ideas and uh the speakers are are just uh truly just so inspiring and for those listening today the 2023 celebrating women breakfast is on may 4th it's in the morning before work (laughs) in new york city we have the information for you in our show notes and on our instagram bio at women of tomorrow that's w-o-m-x-n of tomorrow. If you cannot attend the breakfast in person, considering purchase a ticket, uh, online live stream of the event, um, or come with a group of friends. And if you want to buy tickets, you can visit www.nywf.org to purchase tickets or to sponsor at the event uh, if you can't make it. Uh, we want to thank you so much, both of you guys, for being here today and for the work that you do to to make the world a more equitable place for women. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. Thank you. Thank you for creating this space. We celebrate you. Hey, hey, she came to play. Oh, oh, get out of her way. Thank you, mama. Thank you, friend. I got front row seats to watch the queen ascend. Baby, how you feeling? Breaking that glass ceiling. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.